but you know. Sounds good. We'll work it out. Okay. All right. And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Cood Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf on the Cood Street Podcast. Apologies to everybody for not being around during the hottest month, I guess, in the history of the world. So as the world <laughs> around us, uh, we, don't, we don't need to talk podcast. We can just watch. We can watch apocalypse happening outside. Our <laughs> no, no, we can't watch the apocalypse happening, and you can't say it's the hottest week, you know, month in the history of the world. I mean, it was pretty hot th- three and a half billion years ago, Gary. They didn't have meteorologists then. Doesn't count. Well, so is, is this that if, if, if the tree falls in the forest and no one heard it, well, you know, so if we weren't there to experience it, it wasn't actually hot? So I read this on one of the many, many uh, news articles about this. That 1850 is about when people started getting re- re- reasonably reliable weather reports from various parts of the globe. That's when they considered the modern era of, of, of temperature measurements, I gather. And nothing has been as hot as this past year. And since those uh, things began, that's Obviously, true. Yes, that's we, true. We don't want to. And and the thing that interests me is you do have people saying, "Well, this is this is a fluctuation." Of course, it was much much hotter uh, in the in the early Pleistocene, <laughs> but we're not living then. And <laughs> yes, and you don't want to live through the early Pleistocene. No, not at all. Uh, although. There have been, it's, it's, well, that's another topic at some point. Nice to that is organizing science fiction novels by geologic periods, because Jurassic is the one that everybody thinks about. But it seems yes. to me 20 or 30 years ago, everybody thought the big uh, uh, series was going to be Julian May's uh, the Many Colored Land and its sequels, which was called the Pleistocene the Exile. Saga of the Pleistocene Exile. And it is, and, and, and uh, certainly... Stephen Baxter has tried to write an entire history of evolution in science. Yes. There's even a science fiction novel by George Gaylord Simpson, the uh, paleontologist, uh, about which is a good puzzle kind of uh, novel, not terribly good. Uh, trying to remember what the, the, the character's name is, Sam McGee, I think. And other stuff pops up. We've got um, Ray Naylor has a novella coming out next year, The, Tux, the Tusks of Extinction. Uh-huh. So, you know, maybe it will be relevant. I mean, everybody loves a good dinosaur, Gary. It's our career motto. Uh, that's absolutely true, except except people, except the modernists who prefer mammoths. Because I've noticed mammoths are showing up in a, in a, in a number of novels. It's because, they, they, well, they appear uh, achievable. We can, you know, regrow them from leftover bits and pieces. Well, not only that, but our ancestors sort of knew them. In other words... You at least have some connection between humans. What are we talking about here? We're not even talking. I don't know. I was going to ask you, right? Yes. This is the weekend. The weekend that, well, we are recording this episode, the weekend it will come out. So for me, it's the 23rd of July. For you, it's the 22nd. It is the bar- big Barbieheimer weekend. Have you have you seen any Barbieheimer, Gary? I'm going, to see, I'm going to see Oppenheimer tomorrow and probably Barbie the next day. Everything I've been reading about them uh, makes it's, it's a fascinating kind of thing. Obviously, people are making uh, this kind of everybody's making the same joke. I mean, the joke's been going on the Barbie Oppenheimer crossover. What fascinates me is that they are two different. Well, there's kind of science fiction nonfiction because I gather the pro, the, the plot of the Oppenheimer novel sort of pretends that you you know the suspense depends on the fact that you 
don't really know we won the Second World War and that the bomb worked, and then it didn't ignite the atmosphere. That's the way historically he did the same thing in Dunkirk. Barbie strikes me as a really, knowing nothing except the reviews I've read, as a really interesting approach to fantasy. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and and I, I, I'm really getting uh, a little bit tired of reading about product development biopics or product biopics there's uh, you know there, there, there's one about air jordan shoes there's one about uh there was one years ago about the guy who invented the windshield wiper or something and there's one coming up about i don't know some other product but barbie is greta gerwig who's a very interesting and noah bombach who are together very interesting writers and I, i'm sure it's going to be fascinating somebody did mention on twitter that they won't um, they won't be satisfied with product development bio uh, biopics until somebody makes um, the movie about Gene Wolfe designing the Pringles machine. <laughs> Which is a, a, an amusing idea. I mean, I, I will say, first of all, I did read something about Barbie Heimer, and I would say to this is not a spoiler of any kind or anything about the films themselves, that you are best advised if you're going to see them as a double feature to see Barbie first. Really? Apparently I've, through, yeah. I've heard exactly the opposite advice. Well, the one I heard was if you want to sit through three hours of existential atomic war stuff, you know, you're not going to have any time to like process it and think about it before you go in to watch Barbie. And it's a bit, a bit like being mugged by clowns in the parking lot. That was one piece of feedback I got. Now, I have seen Barbie. Oh, you know, yeah. I have. And other than saying that I enjoyed it and that my family enjoyed it, I feel like it's speaking out of turn at this point because. Unlike Oppenheimer, which you cannot spoil. Well, you can't. You, you can't. How? How do you? How? I will tell you. Gary, right. here we go. <laughs> That's it. Well, I mean, first of all, there one of the things that <laughs> historical dramas depend on, and I want to ask you about Barbie and a minute, is especially American audiences not really knowing a lot about history. I mean, they sort of know that the world is still here, so they probably will figure out during the movie. No, we don't ignite the atmosphere, even though that was a worry. Uh, they probably don't know about McCarthyism and about McCarthy's security clearance and that sort of thing. But my point is, you can't go wrong underestimating, I'm, I'm sounding terribly snobbish, underestimating American audiences' understanding of historical material. I might agree with you, except for this very simple point. We're not talking to America. We're talking to the Cood Street podcast listeners. Okay, that's And cool. they are not the kind of people who are unfamiliar completely with the overall shape of the Oppenheimer story and where it goes. But, okay, the, the, the kind of story, I, I will tell you a story, which I was talking to Connie Willis earlier this week. We did a thing for the Library of America, which is still around somewhere, linked on Facebook. And I remember when there was a Science Fiction Research Association in mm-hmm. the southern suburbs of Skokie, north of Chicago. And uh, I went, because actually Connie was a guest, but I wasn't even going to go, but Charles Brown said, you need to go and take care of Connie and take her to dinner and treat her. And I said, it's fine. It turns out there was a restaurant in the northern suburbs, a couple of suburbs north of Skokie, uh, which was owned by Jim Lovell's son, Jim Lovell of Apollo 13. Mm-hmm. So I thought, that'd be cool. Uh, so I, I got a group of, uh, of, of students, mostly. Now some of the, these are some undergraduate students, mostly graduate students. They're all studying science fiction. They're all associated with science. And while we're having dinner... Uh, Jim Lovell, who is uh, just visiting his son, although he does have a little shrine to Apollo, came out and introduced himself to him. And I was just stunned, and, and Connie was just stunned, and we were thinking, this is Jim Lovell. And and he, he had never heard of him. 
any of us, of course, but he knew something mm. about it. He chanted for a few minutes, walked away. And then somebody asked, who was that? And Connie said, that was Jim Lovell. And we get blank stares, a lot of nods, but three or four blank stares from people who are college students. Uh, and finally, Connie said, that's Jim Lovell of Apollo 13. He said, oh, Apollo 13. But I still don't know who it is. And finally, somebody, it may have been me, said, Apollo 13. Okay, Apollo 13, the movie, Tom Hanks. And one of the students said, well, that wasn't Tom Hanks. You can't win. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can't win with some people, Gary. That's fair. Uh, But, you know, but yes, Barbie, I recommend Barbie. I think think it's a good movie. It was an entertaining movie. Um, For family reasons, we saw it at a a, a screening at 9 o'clock at night. And now that I'm an older person, it'll tell you that I stayed awake all the way through it at 9 o'clock at night. So that should be indicative that it was worth seeing um and i'll be curious to, to discuss it with you when you've had a chance to to read it or to, to see it but it's been an interesting time there's something actually came up and I'm, i think i'll you know we should allude to it there's been a lot of discussion since the hugo ballot came out about yes. how the Hugo's run about all kinds of things and somewhere in there uh, i'm not going to link to it someone alluded to our discussion of award seasons Yes. And whether that was critical or affectionate or whatever else. And I've always felt, and I'm sure you did, that it was always affectionate, if anything, and vaguely rec- you know, recalled a period when it felt like at Locust there was an actual calendar almost that you could predict when things started up and things finished during the year. The only real difference now being, of course, that awards season genuinely appears to be about 12 months long. Well, there was an argument, and I think I know the the, the part uh, what you're referring to. There's a, an essay by a science fiction critic saying there are simply too many awards. It's yeah. redundant. We don't need this. And somebody, I think, in responding to that, said that on Food Street we talk half jokingly, half affectionately about award season, and it mm-hmm. is. And every uh, every other issue of Locus, it seems, there's another award, um, either that I've never heard of before. Or another award which is now inclusive of science fiction and fantasy and horror that might not have been. So oh, during the course of a year, I'm guessing that at least once a month there's some award that some writer in our field will be up for. Not to mention the yep. recent award. You know, the fact that uh, my reaction to, to some of these complaints about too many awards is that do the regional awards, for example, really uh, reflect regional literature? Does, I, I think... Uh, Ellen Clay just got a Ohio State Book Award. I think Nicholas sure. got a, uh, a Washington State Book Award. Well, of course, something like Spear isn't about Washington State. But I think people under, misunderstand the purpose of some of these awards. Some of the local awards mm-hmm. are to establish pride in local writers and awareness of local mm-hmm. writers and to drive business to local libraries and to some extent, increasingly, at least in this country, to fight against the idea that some of these books are being challenged and the reading itself is becoming challenged. So my argument is do you that think, the award is a celebration of reading. Yeah. Do you think that we, Coot Street, and science fiction overemphasize awards? I think we overcompensate uh, with, with awards from historically having been excluded from so many awards for so long. In other words, if you go back to the beginning of the Hugos in the 50s, and what preceded that were the International Fantasy Award, and then eventually the nebulas. What I had read about the arguments and discussions and debates and fanzines surrounding these, science fiction is never going to be on a Pulitzer Prize list. It's never going to, science fiction writers are never going to get Nobel Prizes. 
they're not going to get, well, what they know, what Booker prizes, whatever they were called. So there was a sense, okay, we're exclu- we've been excluded from everything, so we're going to have our own awards. And interestingly enough, mystery writers did the same thing. Romance writers did the same. Uh, I think there are awards for like mil- military tech fiction that isn't science fiction. Sure. So in other words, all this is, you know, a kind of, we're not going to be celebrated by the grown-ups, so we're going to have our own party. I think something else happens as well. Hmm. I think there are various things that happen in science fiction where people see uh, mechanisms they can use, uh, tools, to hmm. promote a particular uh, kind of thing that's happening or how they think that things should be hmm. or whatever else. So you can do um, you can do movement anthologies, you can do a cyberpunk anthology, and that'll be about that'll that'll promote that sort of thing. Or you'll do. Uh, a year's best anthology or a queer year's best anthology or whatever it is, you're going to do that. And then the other part of it then is, and you have an award, right? So you've got the award and that comes along and everybody goes, see, this is all about getting attention and focusing attention on what you hope is excellent. And that's valuable. But I don't know that they they mean as much as as what sometimes people hope they mean. I think they're great attention getters and I enjoy them, but I'm not sure they're as significant. But I mean, you're talking about how many awards. I mean, I happen to have... Locus Magazine's news for the month of July open. Uh-huh. And scrolling down it, I see the Mike Resnick, Resnick Memorial Award, the Trigon Awards, the TikTok Book Awards, the Little Blanc Awards, the New English Book Awards, the Imagine Awards, the Cordon Smith Rediscovery Award, the Wellman, Wellman Award, the Shirley Jackson Awards, uh-huh. the UG Awards, the Le Guin Prize for Short Fiction, the Muncie Awards, the Hugo Awards, the Prometheus Awards, the Douglas Barber Award. Uh, I'm not even back to the beginning of July yet. The oh, Fingerprints yeah. Awards, the Utopia Awards, the Ignotus Awards, the Kane Prize, the Bain Fantasy Awards, uh, the Wellman Awards, and that's the, this month. Mm-hmm. And I, I understand why. Okay, I understand the bar conversation where you've had a couple of drinks and you're talking to your friends. Why you would think it would be amusing to have an award award? Yeah. Because it gets a bit overwhelming or a bit sort of... It, when you look at them collectively, they can almost seem a little absurd to have oh, yeah. two dozen different awards for different science fiction in a month or something. But I think it ignores the spirit of them and what they're intended to do. Um, and also, I think, you know, one of the things that happens in a world of decaying social media is bar conversations get online and are seen as being more substantial than they are or should be seen in some ways. So the idea that, oh, an award award, that should have died in the bar half an hour after it started kind of thing. It never got out into the world. Still, we have at least one major, at least one, and my apologies to the awards that I'm overlooking. I'm doing this off the top of my head. We've got one major set of award nominations to come, should come out next month, I think, which will be the World Fantasy Award nomination. And that will be interesting to see. It, it, it was a good year last year. I mean, arguably, it's always a good year, Gary. Well, there's also the question as to what's a good year and, and what's not a good year. As voted on by readers, for example, with the Hugos and the Locus Award, or as determined by a, a jury, as with World Fantasy. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's not, and, or the Shirley Jackson Awards, which I will confess, I, I went to the Shirley Jackson Awards. I was glad to see everybody won. I did not know most of the books and stories that were nominated. But that's partly because that veers toward dark fantasy and horror, which I don't read a lot of. The point is that that award has a very specific kind of celebration. It's, 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 it's arguing in favor of a certain kind of fiction, which is best defined as Shirley Jackson-like fiction. And there are a number yes. of 
working. But it's not just any horror award. It's not just any fantasy award. And I suspect that things like the uh, Prometheus Award uh, are celebrate are, are arguing in favor of a particular kind of science. The, yes, I'm sure. The Bain Awards uh, did the same thing, it seems to me. So to some extent, our awards are one way that people have of conducting debates among subgenres and validating their own subject. I think one yep. of the one of the other reasons that awards have proliferated, and again, I only know this by word of mouth from friends who have been in the romance world, is if you look at things like romance writers or uh, Grammy Award, you can just multiply category after category until you have dozens of categories. None of the big awards in science fiction have done that. There's always a huge debate if Hugo wants to enter a new category or discontinue an old category. Yeah. I don't know the mechanism by which world fantasy would introduce. But the point is, the big public awards don't proliferate subcategories and subcategories upon subcategories the way the Grammys and the Romans. So in order to recognize a special niche, you're not going to have uh, best American roots music science fiction novel. Uh, but roots, just to use Grammys as an example, roots music ought not to be in competition with, uh, with, with, with Taylor Swift, even though Taylor Swift does allude to it. It ought not to be in yeah. competition with classical music or Zydeco or whatever. And since the Grammys have just enveloped all of them, and, I, and to a large extent, I gather the romance writers have subcategories of fantasy and sub, sometimes fantasy arranged by, by historical period, if it's historical. Since the Hugos and world fantasy and nebulas have not expanded, in order to grab attention to those special corners of the field, uh, they have to have their own awards or somebody has to have their yeah. own and the other, the other point which comes up is that if you're organizing a con, a way to get people to show up um, is It's a community thing. I mean, wh one of the reasons I'm sure, I mean, we obviously sort of operate from a basis of no fact in conversation quite often here on Good Street, so this is not based in fact. But I would assume that the reason that the, you know, the Analog Astounding Readers Awards, the Analab Awards and stuff, the reason that the annual uh, Clark's World, you know, and I think Uncanny also run, Mm -hmm. Readers Awards. They're all about building a sense of community. I mean, the original Hugo Awards, which you know, I think were suggested, someone, should, someone suggested should be uh, moved away from Worldcon and run separately. Mm -hmm. um, they're actually a part of the, the you know, a, a, commu a community building exercise that came out of Worldcon and the World Science Fiction Society. And I and I can see that that that's part of their role as well. But obviously, not when they become combative, but when they are. Um, well-received awards are uh, a community engagement kind of thing as well because you get to you know vote on them you get to talk to friends I mean certainly for me as I've said often 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 on the podcast um, over the years I enjoyed talking to friends long before I was involved in the field about awards and handicapping awards and what books that I'd read during the year that I felt uh -huh. should be considered and all things it was enjoyable but you know that's awards and we've spent 10,000 hours talking about awards you'd think would be good at it by now thank you Malcolm Gladwell uh -huh. but maybe we should segue and I, this is an unfair segue because I, it occurred to me off the top of my head while we were um, talking but to try to make the episode at least vaguely useful to the world at large hi readers um it's July and mm -hmm. there's a couple of books that have been I'm hearing a lot about that I would flag to our listeners to maybe pay attention to if yeah. they're interested. Um, we have in the August issue of Locus a, a a gushing review, really, for Vajra Chandrasekhar's 
debut novel, The Saint of Bright, Do- Bright Doors, mm-hmm. which is out from Tor.com. And I've started to re- read it, and it does seem to be terrific. And certainly everything I hear about it is great. And uh, my good friend Irene Gallo, when I asked her last year about book, you know, book, you know, debut novels to keep an eye out for in 2023 that were coming from Tor.com, which she was running, uh, what were the two to, to, you know, to, to look at? And mm-hmm. she highlighted some desperate glory by Emily Tesh, which we've talked about earlier yeah. in the year, and and this book, um, The Saint of Bright Doors, which she said was a remarkable book, and it sounds like it is. The other book, while you're thinking, because I'm going to throw this to you to see if there's been anything that you've enjoyed that are July books, Gary, is a debut novel from Kemi Ashwingiwa, uh-huh. and Kemi Ashwingiwa's debut novel, The Splinter in the Sky is a space opera novel with tea services in it, I believe. And based on recent uh, behavior in science fiction, we enjoy tea service stories. Mm-hmm. And I had uh, our mutual good friend, Joe Monty, raving to me about this book and saying it was really, really terrific. Uh, I would ignore all of the like to like, you know, if you, if you like this book, then you're sure to like that book. But it's got a fantastic cover. The book sounds interesting. It's a debut novel. And it feels to me like it's a, a good thing in a reader's approach to a year, a healthy balance to include at least a handful of debuts into your reading diet if you can. And it sounds like the Chadra Sekera and the, um, the, the, the Ashwin Giwa novels are well worth it. And the Tesh book was, which I read earlier in the year and enjoyed. Well, I think one so, of the things, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Oh. I was going to say, I was going to say, segue back to you saying, so do any books occur to you? I'd have to, this, this is a problem. I was, I was on a reviewing panel at, at ReaderCon last week. And, and I, again, get confused, like, what's coming out right now? Yep, know, yep, yep. One of the things about, I think, this week, for example, is a novel which I did read and review, which is an interesting novel in the, in the sense that it's, it's Silvio Moreno Garcia's Silver Nitrate, which is the work of a writer who clearly began with and, uh, and has been very conscious of and very, com- very confident in the field, somebody who's you know, written about Dr. Moreau, for example. This is a this is a novel which is um, about film history. It's about partly about Mexican horror films in the 1950s. It does get it does get kind of scary and supernatural, and it's actually a good novel. But it's a novel which I see being marketed more and more as a kind of mainstream mystery thriller. Yeah, which is fine. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm glad to see that happen. But I did notice something, and this is uh, leads into another novel which is not out until. Fall. But it's a it's it's a trend which I've noticed in in this year probably been going on for years. In the Silvio Moreno Garcia novel, there is uh, a, a movie director, a German movie director who moves to Mexico in the 1950s. He's probably associated with the Nazis. He's certainly associated with occultism and the idea of making this movie, which will somehow cast a massive spell over the audience. It's, it's, it's movie as apocalypse. Well, of course, who are the occultists that this German director was connected with back in the 40s? Aleister Crowley, for example. Jack, <laughs> the character who uh, has shown up in novels from China, he able to uh, lobby Titter, who, the, the guy who is a founder of one of the founders of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, but he was also a friend of L. Ron Hubbard's, but he was also a mystic with Alistair. These characters have shown up not, in, not only in Marina Garcia's novel, they're showing up in Lavi Titter's next novel. They were in, I think, two other novels. And if I'd known we were going to talk about this, I would have looked them up. But it's like even science fiction is being infiltrated by 1940s occult weirdness. And 
I'm, I'm glad because these are people I've, I've been fascinated by. But nobody seems to have written the Aleister Crowley novel or the Jack Parsons novel or whatever it is. But anyway, uh, Silver Nitrate is, 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 a, is a solid thriller, and it also deals with um, a, a lot of issues that Marina Gosea has always dealt with. The main character is a sound engineer in the 50s in Mexico, not in the 50s, who's having a hard time getting jobs because it's a sexist industry and there aren't any female sound designers. Well, I mean, speaking of debut novels, I mean, I would certainly endorse any endorsement of Sylvia Moreno Gaceres' work because she has, over the past four books or so, developed into a very major writer. Yes, wonderful yes. writer. But just as I have a review where I've got someone being overwhelmed by the Chandra Sekera novel. I don't think I've heard, and I know I'm mispronouncing that, I have to think about it, so I apologize, but I don't think I've heard you sound as entertained with a book in a review as you do in your forthcoming review of Wole Talabi's debut novel. For one thing, it's hilarious. It's a, it's a flat-out adventure novel. It's uh, it, it, it's the kind of thing that you can read for sheer, sheer entertainment. But it also is uh, a kind of rethinking of, of these adventure stories. I mean, there's there's Indiana Jones material in it. There's a wonderful scene in it where characters are, are tunneling. They're, they're uh, yep. sneaking into the British Museum, basically a steel-back stuff that the British Museum is in the first place. But it's nonstop action. And the fantasy elements are based almost entirely on on Yoruba mythology uh, or Yoruba religion. Well, it's, it's referred to as mythology in the, in the novel. It, 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 the main character is a retired uh, god of nightmares uh, who is just trying to deal with all the all, all all the gods in the Yoruba pantheon. And the gods are basically partly gangsters. They're partly bureaucrats. They're partly uh, inept diplomats. They're, they're worried about, uh, for example, losing market share to Christianity. Uh, they're worried about product placement. They're worried about also. So, so in other words, it's a very contemporary um, social satire, which is set mostly in Nigeria and uh, well, set all over the world, but key parts in Nigeria and in England, which at the same time is one of these novels that makes you well, makes you do two things. Realize there, there, there are an awful lot of sources for fantasy and or awful lot of sources for supernatural creatures that we only can see now that we're looking, for example, in this case at African stories mm. and legends. And the other thing is that um, you can make an absolute thrill-wide kind of novel out of, uh, out of material which you're not lecturing the audience about it. You're not, uh, you're not saying it's good for you to learn about African uh, uh, literature and African culture. It is, but it's also possible to make fun of it in the same way you would make fun of any bureaucracy. And so... Uh, well, but I, well, it's also got to be encouraging that you've got a book that plainly is interesting and engaging and, inter- and entertaining that does that. I mean, there's nothing unusual reason that should not happen, but it's good to have a an example where you can turn and say, well, if you're looking for an interesting, engaging, entertaining novel, if you're interested in debut novels, then... Shigidi and the Brass Head of Obalophon by Wole Talabi is a fantastic example. Mm-hmm. In fact, right now you would say that, yeah, what are you saying? I, I think, I suspect this without any evidence at all, that uh, that title was almost, I think it was revised to almost make the novel sound more like an Indiana Jones mystery. Because for a couple of years I'd heard about the novel, at least over a year I'd heard about it, simply under the title Shigidi. Yeah. And Suddenly, when it came, between the time it was announced, I think announced on tour.com and the time the novel appeared, and the, the, the 
the rest of it was added. And I thought, okay, that makes it sound a little bit like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And there is some of that buzz to it. So I yeah. think I think that there's, an, I hope, this is where I hope the marketing works out the way it should. This is, this is not just a novel for people who enjoyed, for example, Nnedi Okorafor's take on it. Sure. There is a, this is this is very much its own thing. And I think that they need to get the adventure novel audience paying attention. To and and, and by, that, by that, I mean, one of the things we hear talked about a lot uh, in podcasts such as ours and in magazines is how healthy it is that we're being made aware of other cultures and other voices from all around the world. But that makes it sound almost like... Like, like eating your vegetables. Exactly, exactly. And and the idea that... And, and, and most of the... Good novelists I know, including Nettie, who, who loves writing comic books as well as novels and uses comic book effects in some of them. They're, they're also having fun. And I think that the eating your vegetables thing ought not to get in, in, in the way of having fun with these. I would want to stress to people, just in case this is coming off that way, ignore the whole eating your vegetables angle. I mean, what struck me about your review and why I raised this book is just because I just haven't heard you sound in a review as you, you, as if you'd enjoyed a book that much it was just, in uh, a while. Yeah, and, and I think part of it is you do go in when you're reading about other cultures that you don't know about. You, you have hmm. to go into a novel with a sense, I'm going to learn something. And that's not yeah. necessarily going in with, okay, mom, I'll eat my vegetables. But there is a sense of, I hope this is fun because it's going to be useful for me in all kinds of ways. And it turns out... It's enormous fun and useful at the same time. There's not a choice. But let me ask you, let me ask you, how, when you pick up any book, right, and setting aside your reviewer hat for a minute, how often is useful a criteria? Because hmm. it doesn't occur to me at all. I'm, I'm like, am I engaged? Am I interested? Is it going to be fun to read? Whatever else. Even what, I mean, just right now, I've gone back and I'm currently rereading Down Below Station by CJ Cherry. And I'm doing that because I needed something I'd be engaged by and whatever else. And I, am being engaged um when i raised you know this i'm thinking about de just debut novels that look interesting and i think it's i'm personally always interested in debut novels because it's just the way well, i guess the science fiction field and the world works you know new mm -hmm. people come in what are they doing and how interesting are they and will we be seeing them in the future or is this the only time was this the book you know a couple of years ago we had shelly parker chan coming in with you know uh she who, she who Became the Sun, and the second of Shelley's books is coming out in a couple of months. And um, it looks terrific, but you know, Shelley was a debut novelist who became a Hugo nominee and now is just someone we know who writes terrific books. And here we have four books we've touched on, two fantasies, two space operas, uh, because Some Desperate Glory, the Emily Tesh book, is a space opera, and so is um, The Splinter in the Sky by Kamiyashi and Giwa. And both uh, Shagidi and the Brass, head of Obalafon from Wale Talambi and Vajra Chandrasekhar as the Saint of Bright Doors, are fantasies. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just nice to have that happening. But I don't necessarily think, and I think sometimes when we think as critics we do this, I don't typically think about doing something with this or wanting something from it other than the book being engaging to read and worthwhile. Well, I don't do it as much now because there's there's really is so much to read and I and, and and so many cultures are represented in it. I used to when I was uh, beginning when I was when I was an academic when I was uh, in the first years of reviewing. I would read books because I thought I ought to get this perspective. I remember going through a period of reading Kobo Abe, who had written a science fiction novel, but had also written some very realistic 
and some very surrealistic novels. And I kind of wanted to get a sense of of that sensibility because I had loved, for example, Kurosawa films, and there was a film of war. So in other words, I wanted, okay, there is something going on in Japanese fiction then, which was in the 60s and 70s. That is not like something I'm familiar with, and I want to know what it is. Um, and to some extent, uh, that happened with um, reading, I don't know, something like uh, The NeverEnding Story, or, 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 or to go to a literary extreme, something like Gunter Grass's The Tin Drum, which has some fantasy elements in it. There's some kind of imagination at work there. When you're dealing with, uh, when I was reading some of, uh, of Lavi Titter's earlier stories, there was a sense of uh, an Israeli background in science fiction, which I later learned a lot more about, thanks to uh, the, the two anthologies. But so, so there, well, there was a sense that, yeah, we, uh, I'm curious about other cultures because they're playing different kinds of games with the same literary materials that I grew up with. And I, you, you, you kind of want to see what that is. By the same way, yeah. it's not necessarily purely a cultural thing either. You can look at more experimental fiction, uh, such as some of the stories that Kurt Johnson is writing there. Now there are elements in Jeff Vandermeer and uh, Michael Fisco. And the, so there are a lot of people who do what we used to think of as experimental fiction. That's becoming more folded into. So, yeah, I mean, I'm always looking out for something new. And sometimes when I say, okay, this is a pantheon of squabbling Yoruba gods, uh, I think, okay, I've seen squabbling gods before, and I've seen some Yoruba-based fiction before, but I haven't seen that. how are those things going to work together. Turns out they work. Is that you putting together your palette as a reader or as a reviewer? Well, that now it's confusing. Now it's, it's of course it's, after thirty years or so. Yeah. yeah, certainly when I when I was learning how to read science fiction, and anybody who read science fiction, anybody who grew up reading science fiction, I started in the fifties when I was a kid, has to come to the point when you realize this is not this is not a consciousness raising thing of the last 15 or 20 years anybody who read science fiction seriously for decades had to at some point of thinking all these guys are the same uh, these these stories are all written by people who know each other who share the kind of same vocabulary and occasionally you'll see some allusion not very often you'll see some allusion to Judaism in Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Asimov story. But then when you're reading along this stuff that looks again and again the same, frankly, you notice if somebody writes well, like Bradbury, you notice style. You notice yeah. if somebody really makes quirky use of religious themes like an Avram Davidson. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I discovered Avram Davidson, or for that matter, Peter Beagle, um, and you realize that there are Jewish writers, Jew- writers with Jewish backgrounds, who not only don't want to disguise that the way Asimov frankly did in his fiction, but who think that's a source of fantasy in itself, and it is. Sure. So, so, so what I'm saying is, expanding your horizons as a reader is something you keep doing, I think, throughout your entire life. You would hope. I mean, you know, sort of one of the pleasures of fiction, hopefully, is uh, experiencing other perspectives uh, and getting to be different people through the eyes of a story and getting to understand them. Um, <sighs> I was while you were talking, so I was thinking about this idea of you know you mentioned like is it a good year or is it not? I raised it, then you were sort of querying how you even do it, and I was thinking there's such a, a variety of books that I'm hearing praised this year mm-hmm. that I have no idea how I would even reasonably assess it. I mean, I kind of feel like the benchmark moment is when you start putting together your end of year lists, and if you have more books and stories and whatever else 
just falling onto that list without having to think about it, then it feels like a good year. And when I talk around my fr- I talk to my friends about what they're enjoying that's new, with mm-hmm. you know, sort of critics and reviewers and everything else, they all have their own bubble of what interested and what I mean. The, the five books that Ian Mond would mention as his top five books of the year or that you might mention, or that I might mention, or that Neil Harrison might mention, or whatever else. They're almost all different. Yeah, I wouldn't want them to be the same. And that I find vastly encouraging. You know, I'm I'm as excited about science fiction and fantasy as I probably ever was. And if I feel like there was a golden period, I suspect more and more that that golden period has to do with uh, autobiography rather than anything else. Well, there was a, one of the panels I was on with Rubicon and one of the traditions of ReaderCon, which is only about books and, and stories, it's not about film. Mm-hmm. But uh, somebody who organizes it, and I don't even know who, writes up these course descriptions. We volunteer, we get on a panel, and then the panelists tend to argue with the description, of the, not the course description, the panelists. But one of the titles was The Pyrite Age of Science Fiction. And the argument in the panel, this, uh, in, in the panel description uh, was that uh, you can make the argument that the period normally thought of as science fiction's golden age, let's say from 1939 to the 50s, may have been its worst period. There, there, there were a few stylists in it. It was uh, dominated by a few editors. It didn't have the kind of respect that it had decades earlier with people like H.G. Wells or decades later with people like Wynn. And why do we call it the golden age? And then, of course, the usual line came up, well, the golden age is 12 or whatever it is. But the point I was making is that uh, I think we're in a a period of accept. This is going to sound strange, but, but a period of acceptance rather than revolution. Uh, I, I, let me let me let me put that in context. The uh, the golden age, if you define it as Campbell's golden age, essentially, mm-hmm. in Campbell's own words, began as a rejection of the thirties. I mean, his argument in taking over Astounding and uh, the first issues of Astounding under his editorship in 1939 reflected this, that the tired, worn-out space opera, to use Wilson Tucker's actual phrase, was what was in the 30s. In other words, you, you create the Campbell era by arguing that science fiction of the 30s was essentially trivial. But by the time the 60s come along, you've got Michael Moorcock arguing, well, the reason we're doing this is because all the science fiction of the 50s is just awful, and we need to do something new. Move up to the ni- 1980s, and you've got Bruce Sterling saying, all the science fiction of the 70s is just awful, and we have to do something new. And that's kind of been a, a tradition at least for 70 or 80 years in science fiction. I don't see that happening now. I see a sense that I mean, people uh, still accept cyberpunk as a form. They still accept space opera as a form. I haven't seen anything in the field that I can think of not counting odd offshoot rebellions like the sad puppies, I haven't seen anything that's been rejecting a, a kind of science fiction. I see it accumulating more and more voices. Uh, you yourself have been doing uh, collections of uh, stories about witches and dragons, and I know you're working on space opera now. People still visit these old tropes and sometimes old story form, and nobody's, nobody tells them they shouldn't. I don't know that I agree. Okay, let's... I'm not sure that this acceptance that you're seeing isn't actually a rejection of something else. Ah. You know, uh, the acceptance that you see is also a rejection of a whole bunch of other things. You can't read a book like Babel, mm-hmm. R.F. Quang's book, without seeing exactly what the author is rejecting and reacting to. You can't 
read books like Becky Chambers' uh, A Prayer for the Crown Shy or um, a whole bunch of others without seeing them as actually rejecting an an older, less tolerant, more narrow, more restricted worldview. Because this isn't this is a generation coming up and saying we reject that 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 negative approach. And it's not uniform by any means, because there's obviously still you know, sort of fiction which closes things down as much as anything else out there. But I think there, there's actually a passionate act of rejection going on or attempting to go on, particularly in the times we're in. I mean, you only have to look at the you know the times more generally and how they appear overall to be being portrayed at least and experienced by many as being less tolerant, less open, less willing, less whatever else. Mm-hmm. And so to sit there and reject that in your fiction and in your reading, the your reading, that's a that's exactly that. And it may not have a neat name, you know, uh, the way Cyberpunk, the last real movement did. But the, I mean, that's that that's asterisk that because that's its own fiction in a way. I mean, it may not have a neat movement label, but I think that act of rejecting intolerance is actually more a, 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 a much stronger thing than promoting acceptance in a way. We're going like, no, okay, I, not yeah. that, this. And, and I, I would agree with that, and I don't think you're necessarily disagreeing with me. You're talking about, okay. the, you're talking about the rhetoric of individual novels, and this does happen. Mm. Yeah. Saying, okay, we are not going to have only white cis males. That's been going on. That's not me. One of the latest things I see with writers saying, we are not going to deal with only young, energetic, heroic characters. Uh, for example, R.M. Lindbergh has done that. Cory Doctorow's new novel has a 60. So we're rejecting. But these are individual novels saying, I am not going mm. to do what was done with this 50 years. These are not manifestos. These are not movements. These are individual writers saying, okay, uh, I have not seen non-binary characters do this in fiction, and I am going to have a non-binary character do that. That's an implicit rejection of, uh, of a categorization of characters that was traditional. I don't see it as anybody writing editorials saying, well, the, no. the fiction of the 90s was terrible, so now we need to have uh, a whole new rethinking. But this is, this is the asterisk I was going to come back to, because when I think about my knowledge of the field, so that's that one particular slice of thing which is maybe not as completely well-informed as it could be, there really only are two real movements, and all the rest don't really match up as strongly in my to my way of thinking. The New Wave was a clear, coherent movement mm-hmm. in the history of the field. Cyberpunk, even more so, was a clear, polemic movement in the history of the field. But I don't think many of the any, many or even any of the others match up in the same way. Well, I think partly that's because most of the others were in imitation of these two. Um, I mean, the, the new wave was very problematic. Uh, the Colin Greenland actually wrote a very good uh, book about it, the Entropy Exhibition, and Mike Ashley has, has done a very good job in ecology. But it's something that evolved, had had been evolving for some years before Moorcock began writing these editorials. And, and the same thing's true with Cyberpunk. You know, as, as I think we pointed out before, Bruce Sterling's Mirror Shades anthology uh, basically consisted entirely of stories that pre-existed the cyberpunk manifesto and the cyberpunk movement could be traced back to to philip k dick and all, all kinds of like that so to some extent these were sea changes in the field that got punctuated by manifestos and and fans <laughs> but i think they were shifts in the field that were probably underway for a long time before they ever got a name mm. and of course arguably i don't know if we'll find the time to talk about it later in the year uh, because we will cover it in in 
locus, but this subject is going to be something to be talked about as the, the year closes because Vintage are releasing an 1130-page anthology edited by Jared Shuren, uh, The Big Book of Cyberpunk, yeah. which follows on from the uh, Anne Vandermeer and Jeff Vandermeer edited Big Book of sets of new books that they've done for them. Uh, and I'm curious about about the book. I mean, I've had, had a bit of a look at it and want to sort of read it some more. I'm a cyberpunk essentialist or minimalist, I think. You know, it came and went in a flash. It existed in the 80s. That's me. Um, so to see a book that travels from James Tiptree Jr. to Janelle Monae mm. is, is interesting. I don't know... I don't yet know how much I agree or disagree with it, but I expect to disagree with it a lot. Well, the problem with putting a, a gigantic anthology together and calling it cyberpunk is that you, by, by the very act of doing that, you're defining cyberpunk as a marketing term rather than a literary theory term. In other words, you're saying we can sell why? it. Why? Let me argument of why do you say you're making it a marketing term? Not that it ha- hasn't been one anyway, but why does the act of producing the anthology make it a marketing term? Because what you're doing is trying to, in effect, collect a bunch of things into a market that had not been there. I don't think very many people thought of, of, of Tiptree as a cyberpunk time. But, but to some extent, you, and I can understand, I can even sympathize with it. If you can get people to read early Tiptree stories by calling them cyberpunk, more power to you. All I'm saying is that cyberpunk, uh, in, in this case, has, I, I, I've not seen the anthology. I've not seen the introduction. I don't know what the arguments are. But I think the arguments are going to come down that we can sell this as cyberpunk and therefore we're going to call it cyberpunk. Remember, cyberpunk is a word that was on the cover of Time magazine within a I know, I know. Yeah. I, 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 look, I think we have to come back to it because I don't think I particularly agree with that. Hmm. I think it actually is, in a sense, at least part of a genuine historical period in the evolution of science fiction. You know, I mean, I think that period from 1980 to 2000 is that sort of uh, balance between cyberpunk and what it did, uh, mm. the new weird and what it did, and a couple of other things, new space opera and everything. They, they all kind of tie in, and I think there's something to be said. My own caution about something like this, not this book itself, but something like this, uh, or in fact being caught in writing introductions to books like this myself, is that they become potentially in retrospect definitive you know along comes jared shoren who's edited or co-edited some interesting books and plainly is an interesting and thoughtful editor and he makes a dedicated concerted effort to put this book together i mean and we should maybe talk to him about it i mean to me if i were going to try this project i think it would take me three years to do it properly um and he puts the book out and it actually isn't isn't a attempt by him to lock everything down it's an attempt to investigate and inquire, right? Yeah. To define by example. But it looks more and more definitive. I mean, this was one of the things with the Hartwell anthologies, the Hartwell Kramer anthology oh, yeah. that came out in the 90s and 2000s. You know, when you had the space opera renaissance and the hard science fiction renaissance and or the science fiction century and these books, these were all codifying a particular point of view. And David particularly was prone to wanting to do that with those books, I think. Every one of his I books don't know that this is necessarily is. I mean, the tradition of these big book books that, you know, like the big book of modern fantasy, the big book of science fiction, there's much more of an inquiring rather than a definitive defining side to it. But I think that defining happens potentially in retrospect once they've come out. I don't think it does. Uh, I, I think it's, it's easy to see when it comes up that it looks like this might happen. 
But you mentioned, for example, the space opera Renaissance. We can look at your own and uh, new space opera anthologies from 20 years ago now already? Uh, 2007, 2009, so 15 years ago, yeah. 15 years ago. Um, and they were, you're right, they were inclusive. They were rethinkings. They, uh, the, the stories in many of these hold up, the stories in the Hardwell Kramer anthology. But if you mention, if you look now and, and talk to younger readers or newer readers, if they think that the space opera renaissance is definitive, most of them won't have heard of it. Uh, this has been true. There's not been anything like a definitive anthology in science fiction that I can think of, maybe ever, but uh, the, idea that the, the idea that the Dangerous Visions anthologies was the definitive American new wave, nobody really thinks that anymore. And in academia, there have been one after another, the Norton Anthology of Science Fiction, which had Ursula Le Guin's name on it. Nobody thinks of that as definitive anymore. There is a thousand-page anthology, a text anthology by a, an editor named Heather Marjorie that lasted for a few years, may have done well, I don't know. Nobody remembers any of these things as being definitive. And the ones that looked like they were definitive back in 1946, like uh, Adventures in Space and Time, are now looked at as historical artifacts. You don't think, and I test I test this by putting forward an example, you don't think that Robert Silverberg's The Science Fiction Hall of Fame codified the perceptions of the Golden Age? As a historical artifact, not as not in any literary sense. But this is, this is an anthology, and, and Silverberg was open about this in the introduction because it was voted on by the then... Well, yeah, no, I, know, I know how that came about, yeah. So, so yeah, uh, it, 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 it is, this is what our gang felt was the most important stuff in science fiction that formed our sensibilities when we were young men and a few of us were girls, but we were mostly young men. And it, so it's a, it's a historical artifact now. It, it doesn't tell you much definitively. If you put that anthology next to, for example, one of Lisa Yasek's anthologies of women in the 40s and 50s, uh, you can see, no, it wasn't definitive. It was definitive. It was definitive reading list for a bunch of guys who were getting on in years. Sure, but we need to talk about what we mean by definitive here. Okay. Um, I didn't use the word definitive about the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. I said that it codified. Okay. All right. I'll agree with that. And I think it did. I think, uh, and in this sense, if define were to draw the lines around, I think when the Science Fiction Writers of America, as I think it was called at the time, yeah. had uh, engaged Robert Silverberg to edit the Science Fiction Hall of Fame by querying their members, that book, which went on to sell hundreds of thousands of yeah. copies, to be taught in schools, to um, remain in print, I believe, to this day, right? That book set a particular worldview of what science fiction was. It excluded so much. Yes. But it set a particular worldview, which then was the one that was repeated ad nauseum thereafter as being the one. I can see the arguments that sit in the Hartwell-Kramer introduction to the space opera Renaissance from Shinola, the history of space opera, um, being echoed in other people's arguments about the evolution of space opera as an idea. Oh, yeah. You know, these things have this impact. I would almost guarantee uh, to Jared Shoren that his introduction will be being quoted in 20 years' time as a definitive argument about what cyberpunk is. It could be, but I'd hate to get that speculative without even knowing you know, what the what the book is or if it has an introduction. It does indeed well, have an introduction, yes. Hartwell, and I mean, even when Hartwell was doing his year's best science fiction, the very fact he was separating those was an argument. You know, every, uh, and, and he was reacting against Gardner de Zouaz. So 
So the idea of the anthology as argument is something that I have no problem with. I've said that many, many times. Um, the arguments, but the arguments aren't necessarily unique to the anthology. So what the Science Fiction Hall of Fame did was to reflect a, a set of preferences that had you were, okay, back in the 70s, 60s and 70s, there were books, histories of science fiction. There was one written by Donald Walheim. There was, oh, Lester Del Rey, for example, one written by James Gunn. All, all came out within about, if you were to um, look at all the stories mentioned in those various histories, you'd find the contents of the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. In other words, yeah. it's simply a reflection of, this is what we think the history of science has been, sure. to their credit, more or less since 1926. I, don't I feel like I should in, I should make a point in here, because we've I've mentioned David Hartwell in the past with these books that he did, some of which he did with Catherine Kramer, some of which he didn't. Um, all of the things that he did, I think, were an act of love towards science fiction. I mean, he he loved argument and discussion about the field and uh, would have, I'm sure, launched all of those anthologies as much as anything to be discussion and whatever else rather than a negative regardless of anything else. So I want to be clear that, I mean, that's how I see them. I should also say that as we sit on the cusp of the end of our hour, Jet Gary, yeah. we haven't even got to the one news item that I'd thought we might talk about uh, and we might run through very quickly rather than get into detail because I'm not well informed about enough anyway. But now is a grand time, particularly if you enjoy big anthologies which feature, well, lots of short stories, to be supporting the short fiction market. We are now, I think it's next month, that Amazon uh, will uh, discontinue its subscription setup for magazines and move it into its Kindle unlimited program or something, which is going to yeah. uh, deeply impact the um, financing of a lot of magazines. This Now is the time if you've been reading magazines online for free or buying them from someone like Amazon to examine very closely how you can support those magazines to get out there and find new, new, you know, new things. I mean, I note that Strange Horizons has just completed its annual fundraising drive uh, through Kickstarter, and that Uncanny is doing the same at the moment. And I also note that both Analog and Asimov's, who did provide their magazine, well, in fact, will be providing the magazine through the Kindle Unlimited program, have also launched their own direct subscription uh, service for, for digital copies of the magazine. And I would encourage people to go to Asimov's.com and Analog.com and check those out. You can also get FNSF from, uh, I, oh, I've blanked on it, name of the place weightless books okay uh, i'll try and put links in and there, there are lots of many many other magazines that deserve your support should you be be uh, a short fiction reader certainly clark's world and lightspeed and uncanny and all these places and correo and strange horizons and i could go on fire and but rather than try and you know, just sit here and fail to name everybody i just want to say now is a great time to think about it because if we don't support magazines now the conversation we're going to be having at the end of 2024 is about the great winnowing of science fiction magazines. Which has happened before. And and, and it's, uh, it, in, in the past, it had to do with distribution agreements and, uh, and and so forth and so on. But there was a great collapse, I guess. But the thing is also that now is such an apparent golden age, and there are new magazines coming along all the time. One of the ones I actually have read, and I, I don't read all the online magazines because I don't have the picture. You've mentioned Sunday Morning Transport. It's a new mm. magazine. It's fine. It's really good. Clark's World, of course, is, is excellent. 
But the question that people should be asking themselves is if you're willing to pay for your book-length fiction, shouldn't you be willing to do something for the shorter fiction that you enjoy? And yes, I, and I, I personally have experienced, because this is about me, Gary, um, there feels a wrench moving from accept, getting something for free for a long period of time mm-hmm. to moving to pay for it. Yeah. My experience of Tor.com, my experience of Strange Horizons, of... of uh, Lightspeed of Uncanny, of Clark's World, of The Dark, of Fantasy Magazine, all these magazines of Beneath Ceaseless Skies is to get them for free online because their content tends to be published on for free online. But now is the time to look at ways to support those magazines if you enjoy them. And that means adjusting to the idea you're going to be paying for them, not necessarily paying a lot. Uh, and yeah, I, I think that's something that I will be doing more of and that I encourage others to, because I don't want to sit here in 12 months' time and go, gosh, look, we lost A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And I absolutely apologize to the many excellent magazines that I've not mentioned in this very brief off-the-top-of-my-head summary. And I think we also, you might want to make a distinction for people who don't read a lot of stuff. So I, I, I tend not to pay subscriptions, but if there are fundraising drives uh, mm-hmm. various magazines, which there are, uh, I I feel a necessity to contribute to those because the story, even if I'm not reading the stories month by month, the stories they are publishing are the ones I'm going to eventually end up reading in anthology. Um, so to some extent, yeah, e- even supporting something indirectly is, 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 is supporting fiction. And I feel bad that I can't support everything that I'd like to support. And, but uh, And Locus is certainly among these magazines that need support as well. But yeah. know, we don't know what's going to happen to the short fiction market until some of this settles down within the next year. What you, what I do know is there's no year's best anthology without magazines to draw their contents from. Exactly. I know that we could sit there and go, as we have, that Levi Tidhar is one of the major voices in science fiction field now. Now, Levi, I happen to know, has written, well, published, published off the top of my head, about a million and a half words of short fiction. They all had to be published somewhere. You can't just get that collection. You know, Neom was one of the best books of last year. Mm-hmm. And it's a collection of short fiction as much as it is anything else. It really is. You know, so, you know, you do need to be uh, supporting them if you if, if you love, love the field. But that's another uh, sort of discussion to have another day. We have all kinds of podcast ideas we're talking about. I wouldn't name specific guests, but there are all kinds of people we've mentioned here that I think it'll be great to talk to you before the year ends. We owe everybody a belt load of podcasts that we we've do. not done. We have to get caught up, get our 26 out. Um, I would also point out an absolute commercial. It's the 23rd of July, Gary. Within the next two weeks, the Book of Witches will be in the world. My new anthology. Uh-huh. I think it's terrific. It's full of great great stories and poems from wonderful writers, and I hope that the people will go out and check it out. It also means that I get to continue to have an editing career, <laughs> and I'm just on the cusp of signing a contract for a new book. And it's also an example, since, all, since I've read it, of what we were talking about earlier, that you can have that the newer writers and writers from different perspectives and different cultural backgrounds return to some classic stories or classic concepts and bring completely new ways of looking at it. So, so yeah, it's a book of witches, but it's, as I think you said in your introduction, it's not all Margaret Hamilton in a pointed black cap. No. And, and, and just as in the Book of Dragons, witches are not necessary. So, so this is one of the things I think that has been a continual, to get back to our main topic, a continual part of the sea change that's going on. Mm. It's not that we're rejecting, not that we're getting rid of the old themes, but 
there are more and more and more cultures and voices contributing to this. And yeah, you could do a book of witches. And I'd be willing to bet that 10 years from now, you could do another book of witches and it wouldn't look anything like this one at all. That's what I did. Well, actually you did. In on- 2012, I did a book called Under My Hat, right. which is a book of witch stories that looks nothing like yeah. the, book, the, the book of witches that comes out next month. And in 2010, I did Wings of Fire, co-edited with my right. yeah. dear and beloved wife, Marianne Jablon. Uh, and then you know, in 2020, I did... The Book of Dragons, which looks nothing like Wings of Fire. These are things that creators pick up and they reflect themselves through them. Uh, they tell different stories and they are ju- there are a few things, there are, th- there are a few things, whatever you want to call them, archetypes, themes, whatever, that are big enough, broad enough in uh, our field and in other kinds of stories too, I'm sure, where they are constantly reviewable. And yeah, sure, I could absolutely see doing witches and dragons again. I could do, see doing basically spaceship stories. I could see doing, I mean, I think Garda did the Book of Swords and whatever else. These things are there to be picked up and they always will be because there's always something new to do with them. Well, one of the things we'll be talking about at a future podcast, not for probably more than a month now, is there are two really important haunted house novels coming out in the fall. And haunted houses... That you can do really bad things with haunted houses, like you can do really bad things with space opera. But the fact that there are two novels from major writers that look nothing really like each other shows that this is these these old themes are just kind of classic, and um, yes, and you, you can constantly be playing variations. But we're not going to keep talking now. No, we're not going to. We've keep reached talking. the end of our allotted time, and just a little beyond. Okay, that's we have rambled the ramble in a uh, rambling way. Yeah, we had a theme there for maybe twenty minutes. I mean, come on, there was there's a podcast in here somewhere. And who knows? Maybe by the time the Glasgow Worldcon rolls around, we can ramble in some heather. I, I, I believe that's where you're supposed to ramble, right? Um, I don't think you ramble in heather. I think you roll around. And, no, that's dogs that roll around. Whatever. I don't know. You ramble across the field. And it, it, I mean, it feels like it involves some sort of tall walking stick and short pants and out up and hill hills and stuff i don't know something outdoorsy gary it sounds like you've been listening to brigadoon or something <laughs> uh i think it definitely is time to go oh yeah, it's, it's been fun if we're gonna start singing learner and low it's time for us to go the heather on the hill well whatever all right uh, until next time then we are done this has been the Cood street podcast we promise to do better in the yeah that'd be good